You're listening to the Distinctive Christianity Podcast, where we seek to clarify distinctions between Mormon and Credo Christian thought. I'm Brendan, and I'm here once again with my trusty companion, Skylar. Skylar. <laughs> Just the two of us. Yep. In your beautiful office. Yeah. It is a beautiful office. I'm not going to lie. Uh, when I got here, have I have I talked about this on the show yet? I can't recall. No. Yeah. When I got here to uh, FBC Provo, there wasn't really such a thing as a pastor's office. I mean, there kind of was, but it's a long story. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's being occupied. Uh, so, um, yeah, so I was like, man, there's this, there's this, basically it's like an attic is what it feels like. And uh, it's this up, upper room. And it it just had a bunch of storage in it, just like junk. And, you know, the walls were plaster caving in and the carpet was this purple old ratty carpet from like 50 years ago. And uh, it just was a dirty, filthy place. But it's the best view in the entire building out the windows up here. So I started dreaming. It's like, man, wouldn't that be amazing if this could be an office? And so I was kind of like, you know, maybe I'll just make it my office, clear the junk out. So we cleared the junk out. And I was like, you know, I'll just put like a table in here or something, make it work. We'll see. Well, then some uh, just really incredibly kind, gracious person said, what do you got upstairs? And uh, this is somebody who, you know, he visits our church from time to time. And, and it's like, yeah, those are just junk rooms. And he's like, well... What do you say we redo those, you know? You got any ideas? And we're like, yeah, we'd love to put some offices up there. So he donated all the money for us to be able to build these offices out. So now it's the finished product. Wow. Built-in bookshelves, custom-made, new carpet, new paint on the walls, new windows. And it's, uh, That's nice. Yeah. It's just, it's great. The best view. It's way, it's way better than I deserve. I'll tell you that much for sure. <laughs> so, Yeah. Man, so yeah, crazy, crazy week last week. Definitely. Um, you got to participate in our Thursday night event, which we called, uh, what did we call it? Stories of Grace? Yes. Yeah. What were your reflections on that? I'm just curious. Man, I I, I loved it. Um, it was one of the best nights of the year, the previous year. Yeah. And I wasn't on the panel. My brother was. I mean, you were like a kid in the candy store. I'll just tell you that. I that Yes. Was, I were, was ready you were for a, a late great night. Time. Uh, yes. Yeah. Just being around Christians and inquiring LDS that came. Yep. yep. Uh, people kind of in the middle. Um, it was, it's just a great night. Yeah. Um, and I mean, it was, you know, in the morning, being able to come and spend time with the mission teams that came out here. Yep. And praying with them and prepping with them and then going out with you and Ed to BYU to evangelize yep. was my first time. Yeah. And uh, got to talk with a bunch of just random people walking by. Yep. And uh, it's good. Yeah. It's interesting. The Nicene Creed, if, if the conversation went over a minute, Nicene Creed, up, Creed came up every time. I don't, uh, which was interesting, even when I wasn't yeah, looking it for is, it. It is really interesting. Um, yeah. Every time that every every time that I go out, um, well, I should rephrase that. There tends to be maybe every year, like 
quite the shift of focus when it comes to the kind of conversations that you have. So as the listeners are wondering what we're talking about, we had, we had, uh, we're in Provo, Utah, right? So we are five minutes up the road from BYU. We're five minutes up the road from what's actually the biggest state school in Utah, UVU, Utah Valley University. Utah Valley University has about 40,000 students. BYU has about 35,000 roughly. And, uh, and so uh, that's our context. And it, where we're at, of course, it's 0.49% evangelical Christian in our metro area of 700,000 people. So um, <laughs> it's largely, largely LDS. So when we go out and have conversations with people and just kind of share and compare uh, beliefs and things of that nature, um, we are almost exclusively talking with LDS people. That's just the nature of the, the place that we live in. So yeah, so we had like 56, no, 55 um, short-term, We call, I mean, we would call them missionaries, yeah. came, came out here and uh, just hit the streets um, around BYU's campus and then went on campus at UVU and just had gospel conversations. And it's so fascinating when we do that, we get lots of feedback on the sort of conversations that people are having. And uh, really, like every year, there's a there's a shift in the sort of thing that's being emphasized that comes up in discussions. And probably the two biggest things that came up this year was the Nicene Creed, uh, or just the, like creedal sort of Christianity, uh, and the other one was baptism. Yeah, that baptism came up a ton for people. Yes. So it's just it's fascinating. It's like you know, it's got to be things that are just being emphasized at, on campus, maybe at BYU or in the yeah. LDS church that just tends to be more on lots of people's minds. So. Totally. There are two points um, that really helped me as well that came from questions of many of the people here. And that was, of course, a ton of people lean into the spirit world yeah, and spirit prison and spirit paradise stuff. And um, maybe that's something I didn't emphasize enough was the kind of um, what flexibility, contentment that came from MMP in the early Mormon mm. phase, right? This idea you're going to get as many chances as you want. God can never be a limiting factor, even if it takes tons of lives, yeah. right? When you say MMP. Multiple mortal probations. Yeah. It's kind of the Mormon version of reincarnation. Yep. Um there's differences, of course, but it's the same kind of concept. That eventually you become a Christ, and why is his resurrected body different? Because he gets, he goes from eternal lives to eternal life. He now has a body that doesn't have to die anymore. Yeah, unlike ours, right? Yep. And of course, that's gone. But it is interesting how much work it's done. Where oh, if I die, I'll get another chance in the spirit world. Yeah. Or if people die without it, they'll get a chance in the spirit world. There's not a sense of the urgency like John nine. Yeah. You know, the night cometh where no man can work. Yeah. Uh, Jesus urging, hell is coming, uh, if apart from me, you yeah. know, yeah. Um, that kind of thing. One other thing that really was helpful, and I think it has been a blind spot so far, was the emphasis on the priesthood. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and that, that links to the baptism, right? Yep. Because even if you do it the same way, you know, one has the authority, one doesn't. Yep. And I, and I just, it just kind of dawned on me that as we see the word, creating the church they see the priesthood creating the church yeah and therefore even the nicene creed and all the false doctrines like monotheism uh, that crept in in their view <laughs> yep um that's a symptom yep. that's actually not the cause yep. the cause was the lack of priesthood authority yeah 
or the the lack of the exercise thereof. Yeah, in the case of John and the three Nephites or whatever. Yeah, it was just helpful because I yeah, it's like I haven't emphasized that enough. So one of the things that we ran into a lot in the conversations that we were having with people. Um, and we also did a religious survey. And by the way, some of you may be listening to the podcast now because we enter- encountered you. And uh, thank you. Like, yeah, we really had you. lots of good conversations. Seriously. And we're glad you're listening now. But uh, one of the things that we found on the survey, and we already knew this, but you can actually see the statistics there, and it's a lot more obvious, um, is that, you know, we had, we had, I think, like 110 people or something take the survey. And, oh, goodness. It, it had to be something. So th- this was fascinating for UVU students who took the survey. Um, it was about forty percent of them that said that they had grown up LDS, had now left the church and no longer were LDS. Wow. Um, and then BYU's campus. Now this is fascinating. You just think about some of the dynamics here. Uh, but BYU's campus was only between five and ten percent that had grown up. Mm. But on a street level, as we were having conversations with people, tons it of doubt. felt like forty percent. Tons like of doubt. It, yeah, I, I was it's, shocked. Yeah, by some of it. <laughs> yeah, but how does how does that uh, create maybe a unique problem for the LDS Church in them thinking that it's the priesthood that builds the church? Essentially, um, does that make the issue of apostasy particularly difficult or different than what? how we would understand apostasy as evangelical Christians. Wow. Because that's a great question. Because, you know, we as evangelical Christians, we we know that the flight away from religious activity into secularism is not something that's unique to the LDS church. It's something For sure. that evangelical Christianity is experiencing as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, I always appreciate people like uh, John Piper and Tim Keller have often described this this happening as the uh, the disappearance of the mushy middle. Um, so what they say, you know, and we I firmly agree with this that in the evangelical Christian church we do believe that it's the word of God that that ultimately creates the church as God's word falls under fertile soil people respond in belief. But within every church you're going to have those who are legitimate fertile soil who are believing and those who never were. You know, and and that sometimes will become obvious in this life. For some, it won't become obvious until the judgment when Mm -hmm. someone comes up and says, Lord, Lord, look at all these things I did for you. And he says, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. But, uh, you know, for us, um, we we have a way that we understand cultural Christianity in the sense that we would expect that there's going to be unbelievers mixed in with believers in Mm -hmm. what, you know, certain ecclesiological traditions would call the visible church mm-hmm. versus the invisible church. Uh, but I wonder how that works within LDSism if, you know, if the priesthood really is what creates the church and people are receiving the priesthood. Um, you know, maybe it just shows how powerless the church is to keep its own people. Yeah. Well, and also I think there would be even high-level general authorities, maybe even members of the 12 and the First Presidency, they would agree with that point. Um, I, I can recall, and I hope I can find it for the show notes, uh, but uh, Boyd K. Packer gave a talk where he talks about how the priesthood is everywhere, right? but the power of the priesthood is not. Interesting. And so it's funny, whereas we huh. would see... Um, apostasy relative to like belief and faith commitment... Um, they, 
Ultimately, you, you would ultimately, still have the priesthood. We, yeah, ultimately, yeah. <laughs> we would understand it in the sense of regeneration. Yeah, but for them, right. it's a power. Uh, yeah. Because like, even if you're excommunicated, I don't think they can rescind yeah. your priesthood status. That's so fascinating. Yeah. So you can you could be you could have the priesthood in the LDS Church, but not have any of the power yep. of the priesthood. Yeah, because you, either you don't have enough faith, or the people you've given blessings to don't have enough faith, or yeah. whatever that means. Uh, you know, I'm trying to be faithful to, yeah. uh, pun not intended, but uh, to what they would say. But yeah, I mean, it's it's a priesthood is a huge deal uh, into the LDS, and it, it was interesting. One of the conversations, and then I know we got a bunch to get to, but one of the conversations that came up, of course, with me, and they said, "Well, you know, well, you're Protestant, so this isn't a big deal mm-hmm. to you." And I'm like, "Well." OPC clergy, like we have clergy, like, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. uh, but for him, it was like, well, they have priesthood. And I'm like, yeah, I don't, yeah. So there's going to be some similarities. I don't, I don't, I think it's pretty different too, though, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, maybe it's eerily similar in terms of a Roman Catholic. Can they lose their priesthood if they have it, you know, their soul altered? Mm. Um, but at the same time, right, it's the spirit working. So um, like, Technically, even on Rome's definition, anyone can baptize. Yeah, um, it doesn't have to be a priest. So yeah. I think that's pretty different than you know. It has to be one with authority, the exact right way. You know, yeah, exact <laughs> words. So or it's not valid. Yeah. Hmm. So, all right. Well, let's get into it. So, um, tell us, tell us what book you got over there that you're reading this from. And then let's uh, let's hear good old ancient creed to yes, get ourselves well, started. He, he's actually one of my favorite scholars, and you know, sometime when we have more time, we should do a bonus episode on like five books each and there why we like them. Yeah, or authors, if there's you know. But Michael J. Kruger is one of my favorite scholars oh. alive today. Mm-hmm. Um, his work on canon, I think, is the best. Oh yeah. So and that's very relevant in this area, mm-hmm. right? Um, in terms of do we have the right books and all that. But he, um, I- anyone who's read the early church knows there's a concept called the rule of faith. And this has become a big debating ground uh, between uh, Protestants and Roman Catholics, of course, of the East. And uh, I really like his treatment of it. But in it, he gives examples, which are creeds we find in the early church. And I wanted to read one. We read one by Irenaeus recently. Here's one from Tertullian. Now, with regard to this rule of faith, that we may from this point acknowledge what it is which we defend. It is, you must know, that which prescribes the belief that there is only one God, one only God, and that he is none other than the creator of the world who produced all things out of nothing through his own word, first of all sent forth, that this word is called his son, and under the name of God, we seen in diverse manners by the patriarchs, heard at all times in the prophets, at last brought down by the Spirit and power of the Father into the Virgin Mary, was made flesh in her womb, and being born of her, went forth as Jesus Christ. Thenceforth he preached the new law and the new promise of the kingdom of heaven, worked miracles, having been crucified, He rose again the third day. Then, having ascended into the heavens, he sat at the right hand of the Father, sent instead of himself the power of the Holy Ghost to lead such as believe, will come with glory to take the saints to the enjoyment of everlasting life, 
and of the heavenly promises, and to condemn the wicked to everlasting fire. After the resurrection of both these classes shall have happened, together with the restoration of their flesh. This rule, as it will be proved, was taught by Christ. Mm. Pretty good. One thing I like about this one, too, is it emphasizes a little more his mortal ministry. Yeah. Um, but I love it's so good. Know, I love how, as you kind of try to trace the line of these things with the rule of faith, how there was an understanding from very early on of things that were more or less essential. Yes. You know, like like all of these early church fathers tend to have portions of their writing that are like, this is the rule of faith. You yep. know, like the universal Catholic faith, yep. this is it. Without which you do not have Christianity. Yeah. yeah. Because I think there's an understanding that there's going to be tertiary issues within mm-hmm. the church that there's going to be debate on and disagreement on, yep. but we better have that rule of faith that binds us all together as true followers of Jesus, right? Absolutely. And that's what they're always highlighting. Mm-hmm. That's good stuff. Also, Tertullian, all that good stuff right there, mm-hmm. you know, mid to late second century. Yep. So pre-Nicaea. Pre-Nicene. <laughs> always got to make that note. Absolutely. Okay. Let's get into the, the uh, Come Follow Me curriculum. Uh, if we have any new listeners, this is the format of this podcast. We have some banter. We read a creed. And then we get into the LDS Come Follow Me curriculum in order to interact with it and see where there might be points of agreement or where there are important distinctions to be made. Uh, you know, Right up front, we'll be clear that most of what we're drawing out are the distinctions because we see just lots of them, and we think it's important to be clear on our language so that we can be clear on our beliefs. So uh, the LDS curriculum for March 27th to April 2nd of 2023, you don't need to be listening in that timing to benefit from this, we hope, but uh, they're looking at Matthew 14, Mark 6, and John 5 and 6 here this week. And the title of this is Be Not Afraid. And then we get into really what are in the Sunday school curriculum, because we are looking at the Sunday school manual, we get into four uh, subsections that are given for this week. And the first one is from John 5, 16 to 47, which are some really significant and important passages regarding the nature of Christ mm-hmm. and uh, his sonship and what is meant by that. Um, and we Salvation. are, yeah, and we're <laughs> not going to dive really deeply into that, but uh, we've talked a lot about the nature of Christ and we'll continue to talk about the nature mm-hmm. of Christ. Uh, but just just know that uh, the subtitle of this section for the Come Follow Me curriculum is Jesus Christ is the Beloved Son of Heavenly Father. We've already discussed this. Go look at even the virgin birth uh, episode, episode, I think it was episode number two, but uh, or maybe three, I can't remember. But in any case, we've talked about how an LDS conception of Jesus as the Beloved Son is radically, radically different from our... Uh, belief on that, which was clearly articulated in the Nicene Creed. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we believe that Jesus is eternally generated from the Father. In other words, he is eternal and is one in his essence with the Father. Jesus was begotten, not made. Uh, he wasn't created. He didn't ever come into being. He always was and is um, mm-hmm. with the Father. Mm-hmm. And so that's a Trinitarian theology, and that's what's being articulated throughout the Scriptures. Um, again, our authority is not, first and foremost, creeds. Our authority is the Bible, mm-hmm. and creeds are only good insofar as they are rightly interpreting the Scriptures. Mm-hmm. But insofar as they are rightly interpreting the Scriptures, they are authoritative, and we want to listen to history and how that stuff's been articulated in the past, because people who've gone before us, we need to humbly recognize 
have worked diligently to articulate the truths of the Bible rightly. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so when an LDS, of course, person says Jesus Christ is the beloved Son of Heavenly Father, what they mean by that is Jesus is literally one of the spirit children of Heavenly Father, just like we are. He was the firstborn of Elohim and Heavenly Mother, and uh, he is the favored child because at the point when they were trying to determine what the plan of salvation was going to be for the world, there was a disagreement before between Jesus and Lucifer, Lucifer being the second born by most people's belief within the LDS faith. And of course, uh, Jesus was, his plan was chosen because it included free will and not predestination like Lucifer's. And so Jesus was given the right to be the redeemer of the world and all of these sorts of things. And so when an LDS person says Jesus Christ is the beloved son of Heavenly Father, they mean that in a literal sense. He actually was born of Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother, and even on earth was born literally of Heavenly Father condescending to have relations with the Virgin Mary, and Jesus was birthed as a result of that sexual act. Mm -hmm. Which also shows how polygamy is still there even if people don't think about it. Because yeah. if there's Heavenly Mother, but Mary is also one of his wives, you can see why Brigham Young would say polygamy is necessary yeah. yep. to become a Heavenly Father. Yep. You need at least two wives. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, so, I, you know, we're not going to focus on John 5, 16 to, to 47 uh, much today, unless you have anything you want to insert right here just quickly, because we've got more... 16 to 47? Yeah, we've got more that we want to sit on for a longer period of time. Absolutely. Um, uh, well, um, really quickly, uh, of course, if you read John 5, you'll see this is an incredible place where even the Jews seeking to kill him um, see Jesus as making himself equal with God. Mm-hmm. And, of course, they're going to emphasize LDS, David Ridges, whoever else, uh, unity of will but not unity of substance at all because the father and the son are two different gods. So um, so by the way that's John 5:18 which says this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him being Jesus because not only was he breaking the sabbath but he was even calling God his own father which the Jews interpreted making himself equal with God. Yes, and David Ridges um <laughs> his comment is just that they work together in complete harmony. So, it, yeah. no, that's not what we... Yes, that's true, but that's like almost the least important of the truths being I mean, truthfully, if Jesus was just saying to all the other Jews, we're just in really good harmony, the Jews would be like, that's great. Yeah. You know, congratulations. That's really good. No, no, no. The blasphemy was that Jesus was saying he was God. They're exactly. Equal. Yeah, and, and th- this is technical. This goes back to the Chalcedon that we read. We believe Jesus has two wills. So we are right. Orthodox Diothelites. What is that? Well, the Monothelites see Jesus as only having one will. But if Jesus is one person, has a divine and human nature, yeah. if he only has one will, that's either changing the divine nature or he's not fully human. He's not human like we are yep. and therefore can't redeem us. Yep. So we are Orthodox Diothelites. And so them emphasizing two wills, mm-hmm. even, even where you think, oh, we can agree that they they agree in will, but if you dig a little deeper, that's not true mm-hmm. because they think they're two distinct beings and persons with two different wills. Yeah. We think there's only one God. God has one will, but God also became man and Jesus and therefore in his humanity has a human will. Yep. So um, 
I, I will say uh, Joseph Smith used John five nineteen. Um, the son can do nothing of his own accord, only what he sees his father doing. I can put some of these quotes. I won't take the time to read them, but uh, this was one of those passages that was so key to Joseph Smith's theology, especially in the Nauvoo period, because he says this to say Jesus is only doing what he, in another life, presumably saw his father do as a savior for another world or set of worlds. Yeah. And I've heard this used, it's not as used as often, but I've had personal conversations in the last couple of years with people mm. who still remember this point. Um, so <laughs> what did Jesus do? Why well, I do the what, things that What I, are you reading out of there, just for the... Well, it, this is, um, you have the words of Joseph Smith, the teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith, and then this is a compilation uh, that, um, let's see, I think it's Kent Jackson. Nice. Compiled and edited that is helpful in putting Joseph Smith's usage of the Bible in order. Nice. It, it saves a lot that of time. That is helpful. But yeah. I do, I, I typically, I didn't today, but I typically go into his sources and read the whole context of what Joseph Smith is saying. Yeah. And there's tons of stuff around it. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, he, he basically, and people, you know, will say, um, won't realize in his last sermon, he claimed that, um, the father's father is referred to in the book of Revelation as well. Mm. So Elohim in the early Mormon temple was the grandfather. Mm. And Michael, of course, Brigham Young wrote the original endowment that was written anyway. Yeah. Joseph Smith had one, but it was unwritten. Um, and so people will bring that up against some of the stuff we brought up. Right. So here's a point to put it out. It pointed out that in the early temple, Elohim was the grandfather. Michael was the father. That's why Jesus is called the son of man. He's mm. the son of Adam. And Adam is the archangel Michael, right? It's stuff like that. And then yeah. Jehovah is Jesus. Right on. So there's a lot in there, but yeah. Yeah. Were you going to read the quote though? Oh, yes. I feel like we we're about to get Sorry. I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I distracted you. Oh, you're good. Like, um, what, what is that book you got over there? It's it's fine. What did Jesus Christ do? The same thing as I saw the Father do. Saw the Father do what? Work out a kingdom. When I do so too, I will give it to the Father, which will add to his glory. He will take a higher exaltation. I will take his place and be also exalted. He laid down his life and took it up, same as his Father had done before. He did as he was sent to lay down his life and take it up again. So, and there's, there's more, I mean, he, this is, he said something like that in several places. Yep. For sure. All right. So that's John 5, 16 to 47. And then the next section in the curriculum moves on to Matthew 14, 15, 21, Mark 6, 33 to 44, John 6, 5 to 14. And of course, these are the stories of the feeding of the 5,000. So, um, here is the lesson that we need to get out of the feeding of the 5,000 according to this LDS curriculum. The subtitle is, The Savior Can Magnify Our Humble Offerings to Accomplish His Purposes. What could help class members find personal meaning in the miracle of Jesus's, of Jesus feeding the 5,000? So there you go, looking for personal meaning, not for, not yeah. for the meaning. Right. What is the personal meaning? Mm -hmm. uh, you might ask how reading about the miracle increases their faith and the Savior's ability to bless them personally. Getting a little what we call the health, wealth, prosperity gospel mm -hmm. going on here. Uh, they could talk about a time when they felt that the Savior magnified or multiplied their efforts to help them accomplish something that seemed impossible. We see, again, 
the continued theological liberalism of making yourself the center of the story, the center of the text. Uh, you're supposed to, you know, according to LDS interpretation, read the Bible only as a mechanism of drawn out ways that you feel like you can relate to it. Very mm-hmm. different from the way that we're going to approach this text, because yeah. for us, we want to dive into what the author's seeking to convey mm-hmm. in these particular stories. And of course, the feeding of the 5,000 has just some theologically rich so much meaning to it. And I know, just because I've heard your story enough, that this this was a very significant passage for you. Absolutely. Um, so I just want to actually turn it over to you to have a little bit of time to fill out what our evangelical interpretation is going to be th- about this up against a... Uh, uh, LDS view, which of course LDS view, just how can the savior, uh, magnify our humble offerings to accomplish <laughs> yeah. his purposes, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's, there's stuff I would want to say, um, connecting John five to John six, because of all the stuff we just stated, the cutting edge of who this Jesus is when he says what he says is also gone. So, um, yeah, so I, I think, okay, okay. Yeah. The, this is helpful too. And maybe you have some other things that you want to pull out from the synoptics, mm-hmm. but, uh, we, we may just focus primarily on John's remembrance yeah. of the account. Um, but again, in our methodology of interpretation, we don't just pull similar stories. We want to see how the stories are within the flow of the author's entire mm-hmm. argument. So they each have different that's right. purposes and yes, theological that's right. So emphases. it's significant that you're drawing out what John is communicating, which, of course, we believe the Scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is com- communicating something through John mm-hmm. about Jesus yeah. and even the order in which the story is told within a- the gospel. Absolutely. The Well, the... Yeah. So, on the, really quickly, the point on who Jesus is, uh, they cite a Christofferson quote, and this ties to later in John 6, but it's key even here um, because part of the confusion, right, is um, there are 5,000 men in Mark. There In John 6, we get a better idea of what they're trying to do. They're coming and saying, oh, here's the king, yep. um, and we're going to, let's fight. They're, they're thinking kingdom. The way we still think, yep. <laughs> um, and and even LDS will think if they're way into the founders, they're part of like the Bensonite Mormons. Yeah. Um, and of course, this kingdom is not like these kingdoms, um, but that centers first and foremost on who Jesus is. So when, once again, if you deny the creator-creation distinction, you don't have a transcendent God. Therefore, when you see Jesus and you call him God you don't see the divine and human nature issue at all. Like I don't, they don't interact with it at all. Yeah. You get lines like this out of a Christopherson talk that came in the thing where he says, partaking the savior's flesh, drinking his blood means to put our, put out of our lives, anything inconsistent with a Christ-like character. Okay. But listen to this and to make his attributes our own. Yeah. Whoa. So, you know, whereas we in a standard Christian theology book, they will differentiate between the communicable attributes and the incommunicable attributes. No, 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 no. They mean this, every attribute is communicable. Yeah. Which, to be clear, communicable attributes are those attributes which we could have in common or yes, understand to some in degree. our humanity to a certain degree. Yep. Incommunicable attributes are attributes that no human being can lay claim to. Exactly. So even though we would say... We can't be omnipresent. 
no. for, for an example. We we cannot be present uh, outside of time and space, uh, and therefore have all knowledge of that which is in time and space. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. that's. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I I I get a headache after I study for eight hours straight. Mm-hmm. You know, like I obviously don't have infinite knowledge mm-hmm. in the way that we say God does. So. Right. And it's not just that we have knowledge and he has a ton more. Yeah. It's not just quantitatively more. Yes. It's qualitatively right. different. Yep. <laughs> so, you know, we learn in sequence relative to time throughout our lives. Yep. We learn this and then that and then that and then that. But God knows everything in one eternal, simple act of vision. Yep. There's that's no right. learning yep. to God. That's right. So that's just one example. We could do this. Yeah. We could do a whole podcast for somebody years would say, on this. Well, Jesus learned and grew. <laughs> it, uh, the man Jesus. The two natures. Exactly. exactly. That's why you have to get this right, or you exactly. can't hold the whole Bible together. Yep. When we say, you know, I, I get the sense, and this is taken from Machen, when a lot of people say, LDS will say, whether knowingly or not, or conscious or not, they'll say, yeah, Jesus is God. They're not saying that because they have a high view of Jesus. They're saying that because they have no or little view of God. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Uh, And so it doesn't mean that much to say he's a God. We're all gods in embryo and all that stuff. So that's key because if you get Christ wrong, you get the kingdom wrong. Yeah. And it's true that the feeding of the 5,000 is primarily about this kingdom. And um, I love how Mark, Matthew has it as, as well, Luke as well, but... Uh, I've done more study on Mark 6 and John 5. If you look at Mark 6, right, you have the banquet of Herod Antipas right there. And then it goes straight into the feeding of the 5,000, and you get to compare these two feasts, these two banquets, these two kings, mm-hmm. and and two different types of power, one a very worldly kingdom, <laughs> yeah. um, and one a transcendent kingdom in breaking in the man Jesus. Mm-hmm. And... This God, and you see this in the Old Testament as well, Yahweh has always been greater than people's view of God typically is, but he's also nearer. He's too close to be comfortable <laughs> as well. And so um, this God feeds us. And uh, you see this in the flow of Mark because Mark has three of these. In John, one thing I think is so interesting is you have the feeding you have the issue of he he does walk on water as well, uh, and there's a ton of theology to that miracle, right? But this is coming out of John five and these debates over him and the Sabbath and, and this stuff, and so we get a, a John gives us a, an account of why he was so upsetting. Yep. Um, whereas Mark just says immediately sends him away. There's kind of this chaos and then moves on. Yep. Well, in John 6, what you have a lot of activity going on. You have people following him for different reasons, a lot of work, <laughs> right? And what does Jesus say? Sit down. So stop the activity. Sit down, right? And what is the work? that uh, the work of God, Jesus says in verse 29, this is not mentioned at all in any of the LDS sources. What is the work that we're to do? 
what must we be what must we do to be doing the works of God? They literally asked Jesus this. He says, This is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. Yeah. That's the work. Yeah. And this is this powerful passage where Jesus says, None can follow me unless the Father draws him to me, and I will save all the Father draws. See, they don't have this. They don't have a transcendent creator. They don't have the sovereignty of God. They don't have salvation as a free gift. So Joseph Smith changes this, right? Joseph Smith totally changes this in the JST to fit in our works, Yeah. right? Where um, I, I'm trying to think of exactly how he changes it and not pulling it up really quick. Desire to keep my sayings. Uh, Ridges says the people he draw are the righteous people. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, yeah, I'm not even kidding. Uh, wow. it, all in his comment is the righteous people in the verse 37 that the Father giveth me. No, he doesn't say that. It was the thief on the Christ, the thief on the cross next to Jesus. Yeah, righteous. Well, yeah. it he is if it's a gift from one who is. Mm-hmm. You see. Yep. Um, th- th- it's funny that that worthiness view is also seeps into the this verse where no man can come to me. He also says, no man can see me in verse, um, let's see, where is it? 46. Not that any man has seen the Father, save he which is of God. And um, his comment is, except he who is worthy. Mm. (laughs) And then I, I just have to include this, David Ridges, verse 47, verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, hath everlasting life. This is his comment. Will be exalted, will be placed into the highest degree of glory in the celestial kingdom, and will become a god. <laughs> there you go. So instead of, not only do they not see what we mean when we say Jesus is God, they turn this passage into one about us becoming gods. The more that you read Ridges, the more I'm like, how does any modern LDS person try to make the claim that, oh, we don't teach that anymore? That's yeah. where that's a place where he's helpful. <laughs> yeah, it's like that's a place where he is, is helpful. The current uh, commentary here. Yep. Um, yep. Yeah. So it's it's unfortunate. This John six going back to what you said in terms of how it confronted me is where his whole point is the work is belief in him and he shows no 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 this is my work yeah the father draws people by the spirit to the son and all the are drawn, he saves. Yep. And this is going to be a difference we have with other Christians as well who want to fit somehow free will in. Yeah. Um, now, for them, to be fair, free will is still a gift of God because they have one God. Right. <laughs> Whereas in LDSism, agency is like free will squared. Mm. You know, agency is a right. Not even God could violate it if he wanted. Yeah. Yeah. It's that, that eternal law. Yep. Yeah, exactly. It's an eternal law. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, just just to be clear, I mean, one of the most, the, the beautiful uh, aspect of what's going on in this text, as John records it, is it's testifying to who Jesus is, um, right? We've established that he is God, um, and he is a God who has come down who who does feed his people. And, uh, and so in the same way that God, of course, feeds the people of Israel the manna when they are in the desert. Jesus feeds the people. So this is an expression of Jesus's 
deity once mm-hmm. again, his uh, his power to create uh, food and feed his people. But what's yep. the purpose of that? Is it just to be a showman who's going to draw lots of people to himself because he has some benefits and, you know, e- even like this LDS sort of thing, like the savior can multiply your efforts, you know, he's <laughs> ma- making it about you, 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 you. No, the passage that, of course, follows the uh, which we're, we're, we'll talk about Jesus walking on the water here in a minute. It, it is uh, you've got the feeding of the five thousand, and then Jesus getting in the boat, going to the other side of the lake, walking on on. Well, Jesus doesn't get in the boat. That's the whole point of walking on the water. Then he gets in, goes to the other side of the lake, and then uh, of course, right after that, you got Jesus with the bread of life passage that you were just now working through, where all these crowds follow him to the other side. And they say, you know, Rabbi, Rabbi was here over here, and, and they're all there. And Jesus is like, you're still not getting it. You're just here for food. You're not for me. You're not yep. here for me. Like, mm-hmm. like the whole point of that miracle is that you would receive me yep. as the God who saves, um, not just come for me for worldly, earthly benefits. You know, you're, yep. you're thinking too, too little mm-hmm. uh, is Jesus's consistent message to the crowds, right? All right. Anything to add there? Yeah. Well, once again, the the even the the theology of the event, right? Like, sit down. Yeah, I'm going to work. This is something I'm doing. In Mark six too, it's like he tells the apostles. The apostles are being practical. They're being a you know American pragmatists, right? Yep. And saying we don't have enough. Food. I, mean, I think the, the average village at this time was about two to three hundred people. Yeah, I mean, th- there probably wasn't five thousand men in Capernaum. I mean, they think maybe around ten thousand at this time. This is a huge group. <laughs> yep. And so they're it's becoming evening, right? And they're getting worried. We don't have enough food, even. And, and you look at the food they had; they didn't have enough food for themselves. Yep. And literally, the context is: you've been working hard. Let's go rest. Let's yeah. go rest. Yep. And all of a sudden this group is here. And then Jesus moves with compassion, seeing sheep without a shepherd. Of course, drawing on a bunch of Old Testament themes here. The Ezekiel, there's going to be oh, yeah. a shepherd who comes to feed the sheep. And these are do these people deserve it? We learn in John 6. No. They, yep. they're, these are violent revolutionaries, you know, ready to take over. And Jesus is teaching them that's not how this kingdom is. Yep. That's the kingdoms of this world. Yep, that's right. If if this if my kingdom were of this world, my people would fight. Yep. But they don't. Yeah. They serve and submit. And I love this. He says, he actually criticizes the apostles in Mark 6, right? But y- you feed them. Yeah. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> and I mean, people, you know, 200 denarii, that's like eight months to a year's salary at this yeah. time. And of course, even if they had the money, where do you get all the bread, right? That's right. And so, no, what does he do? He says, sit down and feeds them. Yep. And of course, relative to his teaching. So that you, even in Mark, you have that link between the teaching and the bread. What, one thing that I think is um, so interesting as well um, is in Mormonism, right, everything's material. So they really struggled in John 6 when it talks about, when it's making this spiritual, physical distinction, Mm -hmm. they really struggled there. And I know why, because it it has been historic Mormon teaching that the physical is the spiritual. They don't, spiritual is not really real, right? I mean, we see this even with the emphasis on the body, physical body makes you more powerful than any spirit, that kind of thing. 
So they really struggled here, whereas we, what we see as Christian liberalism or liberalism away from Christianity, mm-hmm. um, they emphasize the physical just because they value it more. Yeah. They're more skeptical of the spiritual. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's a difference, it's but they, they, they kind of rhyme. <laughs> yep. Uh, yeah. And, and then just Jesus rooting all of this, of course, in that Old Testament account. Uh, you remember when the Israelites were in the wilderness they uh they started they they ate the manna yep. right uh and then they started complaining about it but i love <laughs> jesus's point here your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died <laughs> you know, it's like yeah if you're just looking for these earthly benefits what good is that going to do you ultimately right you're just going to die yeah you know I, I could keep feeding you mm-hmm. with bread and and you think it's great for this life you're going to die yeah and uh and so then of course he says, I'm the, the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. He is offering eternal life in him. And then he goes on to say, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Um, how can you read this passage and not see that this is all about letting go of self-sufficiency mm-hmm. in salvation and depending on Jesus for everything. Right. I don't just, I don't, I mean, of course it's, it's uh, if you're, if you're not regenerate, you're going to be more apt to twist the scriptures, but I would appeal to you listener. Look how obvious this is. This is the gospel. I mean, this is mm-hmm. Jesus again, announcing that he has come to do everything that is required for his people to have eternal life in him. Uh, and what is required Believe, believe in him. Yes, believe. Relying wholly on him. Yep. Um, I mean, this is remember the this is just a lesson not too long ago, right? Where it talks about finding principles as we strive to develop spiritual self-reliance. Yeah. Like literally the goal of the LDS manual is for self-reliance. Yep. The goal of what we do is Christ reliance. Yeah. We preach nothing but Christ crucified. That's right. He's not just an example. And 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 this is the thing too. Think about this. Why is why does it mean anything? If this isn't, of course, I have come down from heaven. Why why didn't they say, well, of course, we did too. We were at the council. We voted for you. <laughs> yep. There's nothing like that. There's nothing like that because we were created of the earth. I mean, I guess it's just kind of weird. Uh, you know, I I don't know. It's it's amazing how much time they will spend on this, and they do spend it, a lot of time on this chapter without really covering anything in it, really, truly. Yep. That's good. All right, let's keep moving. Okay. Um, so the next subsection is covering Matthew uh, 14, 22 to 33, which is Jesus walking on the water. And uh, here is the subtitle for this section. Jesus Christ invites us to set aside our fears and doubts, so that we can more fully come unto him. That's the subtitle. And then under it says, The account in Matthew 14, 22-33 can help class members increase their faith in the Savior and their desire to follow him. Invite class members to read this account, paying special attention to the words spoken by, by Christ, Peter, and the other apostles. How might Jesus' words have helped Peter to have faith and leave the boat and walk on the water? How do Jesus' admonitions to be of good cheer and not be afraid apply to us today? What can we learn from Peter about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ and to trust in him? You might encourage the class members to think about 
and share experiences in which they, like Peter, took action to follow the Savior, even when the outcome was uncertain. Ask them to share what they learned from their experiences. How has Jesus come to our rescue in our moments of fear and doubt? I want to talk a little bit about this idea of fear and doubt, and I don't think it's uh, unrelated to the last subsection, so we might just kind of lump these together, but in the last subsection, they're pulling from John 6, 22 to 71. The rest of that says, as the disciples of Christ, we must be willing to believe and accept the truth, even when it is hard to do. I think that they're following a line of thought here, right? You have yeah. doubts. Well, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, you need to be willing to believe and accept the truth, mm-hmm. even when it's hard to do. And listen to the first line of this last subsection. The events in John 6 can provide a helpful perspective when people have questions about the doctrine, history, or policies of Christ's church. Um, Okay, let's talk about doubt. Um, We have, I mean, again, in a lot of these conversations, even the last week that we've had, it is evident that there are lots and lots of LDS people who have serious doubts right now. Uh, regarding the truthfulness of their faith. And so I think it'd be helpful for us to talk about doubt and certainty a little bit here. And um, I don't know I don't know how we want to frame this, but uh, I do want to just make some things clear even from our perspective uh, as evangelical Christians. We would want to make a distinction between what we would refer to as objective certainty, and subjective certainty. So in the Christian life, um, there are things that we believe we can be objectively certain about, uh, even regarding our faith. But even aside from our faith, you know, we may, may want to take on some of the skeptics that are out there that want to say that there's nothing that we can be objectively certain about. There's a mm-hmm. sort of philosophical uh, objection that is made to certainty. Um, and then there can be yeah other other forms of that. But generally, even the skeptic has to realize that however many philosophical questions you want to throw out there, you still live in a real world where there are objective realities that you have to live by. Um, so even the skeptic might want to, in his you know, study behind his desk, ponder whether or not the car accident that he drove by today was real or not, and whether or not those people that were Maybe the guy's knee was bleeding out. Was that was he really in pain? Was his experience of pain the same sort of pain that I feel when I twerk my knee? Like what right? There's philosophical questions that are really only relevant if a dude is alone on his own or with a few friends thinking about things out loud. The reality is if you drove by and you saw a car accident and somebody was in need of your aid, you'd be getting out of your car and you would be dealing with it in an objective way as if it was really happening. You're not having a philosophical crisis in that moment, right? So there are, there are things that we can be certain about in, in, uh, in the world. Um, and that's an example of it. And there are things that can be so certain that we would actually define somebody as clinically insane if they are not living by those objective truths. Uh, If somebody believes that when he steps outside of his door, he's going to look out from his porch and see his house floating in space with nothing but blackness and stars around him, 
uh, we would say that person has a mental health problem because it's just objectively true that that's not going to be the case. You're going to walk out of your front door and see grass and earth and things that you always see, right? So there's those sorts of certainty, uncertainty things that we can talk about. But when we start to discuss matters of religion uh, in particular for the sake of this conversation, there, there, there tend to be a little bit different ways that we're going to deal with what we would call objective certainty and subjective certainty. We're going to come to conclusions about religious um, assertions on the basis of what we would say is objective evidence. Can you present evidence that would lead us to have any sort of objective confidence that this faith, this belief system is true? And what kind of evidence can a particular belief system present that would enable us to have a greater level of objective certainty that it is true? Now, within, yeah, I, but in after I say this, but within that, we would admit within any faith or religion that 100% objective certainty in the here or now um, is not possible. Now, what is objective certainty versus subjective certainty? Objective certainty is going to be the evidence that a religion can provide to give you confidence that you ought to believe it on the basis of that evidence. Uh, so there's one of the biggest things we could throw out as an example of this is the historicity of the resurrection. That is a big evidence within Christianity, and it is a strong bulwark of evidence that we point to in order to show there's an objective reason that you ought to have certainty that this religion is true. Jesus was dead, and now he's not. He, he's alive, and we could provide you know evidences for that. But even with that, there still is going to be subjective certainty, and subjective certainty really does often align with our experience because we're still talking about certainty, not uncertainty, right? So subjective certainty within religion would be uh, often we as believers might refer to the uh, experience of the new birth as a sort of subjective certainty that we have, that uh, we heard the preaching of the gospel and we experienced belief in it. And it changed our lives experientially. We were once dead in our sins. Now we were alive in our souls. And we would point to even subjective feelings at times, you know, peace, joy, uh, you know, patience, love, these sorts of things. But that's subjective, right? And so when you're developing um, a belief in a particular faith, you'll want to have both of those things present. Um and if one of them, especially the objective, is lacking too much, you've got a problem. So this is something we were talking about before. And I want to throw the question out. If you had something else that you thought about along the way there, then uh, that's good. But what sort of objective certainty could uh, LDS people try to provide for their particular, if they want to call it a version of Christianity, what would they lean into in order to try to provide their people with objective certainty to try to help with their doubts that they're having? And where might their problems be? That's a good question. And I think there's different, um, on the spectrum, there's different types. The spectrum of LDS belief, there's different types. I think the one that <laughs> I think is a, a telltale sign of um, one's belief in the LDS 
distinctive truth claims is were there golden plates was were there nephites lamanites uh did the joseph smith story happen um you know but it seems like today they're starting to shift away from that maybe because it's not defensible um into more look at the practical effects of living L- the lds lifestyle like look at the good results the fruits they would say right. of living it yeah. then you can know it's true yeah so i would say it's one of those two mm. um generally yeah that's interesting and yeah i think the 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 idea of believing in a god who is certain like augustine you know articulates in the confessions that's kind of weird. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know what? The standard for them is not belief relying on Christ. It's this, they, they have an experience they interpret as the basis for subjective certainty, which the, the, even the distinction you're making would be lost, right? Yeah. It's just certainty. Yeah. And they would say, I know, I know, which Gnostic. Yeah. Knower. Uh, I know this, I know this, I know this based on an experience. Yep. Which we would say that the majority of the kind of certainty that LDS people encourage their people to lean into is subjective certainty. Yep. Right? It it is almost all emotions-based, experience-based, to the extent that the main, uh, I don't know if you want to call it an apologetic, but the main encouragement even evangelistically to people who are not yet members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is you need to read the Book of Mormon Yep. and ask for God to confirm, in a subjective sense, its truthfulness to you. Mm-hmm. And then if they have a subjective experience of the Book of Mormon, that becomes really the bedrock of their faith in it, yep. is that subjective experience. Mm-hmm. And of course, from our perspective, we want to say subjective experience is not reliable. No. You don't want to, you don't want to depend on it. Now, is it, uh, is it totally unreliable to the sense that we wouldn't want to negate any subjective experience as being a reason for a certain level of certainty. No, we wouldn't even go that far as an evangelical Christian. There's creed of Christians. What we want to see is both strong, objective reasons for believing in faith. We we refer to this often as a reasonable faith, right? We want to see the good objective reasons, but then we also want to uh, see and recognize that there is a subjective element in that. Um, so, so again, when we're talking to an LDS person, if we're going to question whether or not there's reason to doubt your faith, we, w- we don't just want to ask, did you have an experience with the Book of Mormon? No. We want to ask, is the Book of Mormon objectively a, a trustworthy text? Mm-hmm. What would our answer be? No, not at all. Yeah, why? It, it, and there's a reason why they probably couldn't name a single non-LDS expert in Native American studies that uses it. Whereas we can name atheists who hate Christianity, who if they study Judaism of the first century, use the New Testament. Yep. Or even a, if they don't believe in Near Eastern history at all. Right. They, they uh, yeah, secular historians rely heavily right. on the Bible as a historical document. Right. The debate is the degree to which it's reliable, not yeah. whether it's reliable or not. Yeah. Uh, whereas with the Book of Mormon, no. I mean, there's only one group that still believes there was a white Native American civilization that came from Jerusalem lost tribes that built, you know, <laughs> came to a land without people here and weren't Asiatics, as Spencer Kimball prophetically said, supposedly. I mean, it's just, no, it's not reliable. So you shouldn't feel subjectively certain about it 
because there's no good reason to believe in it other than this loophole of, I prayed, I got a feeling, therefore it's true. I prayed, I got a feeling, therefore it's true. And that's why when people come out, I mean, there's whole, they're, they're just either going to go even more into that and just liberalize the beliefs like New Age, Deepak Chopra, whatever, mm-hmm. or they're going to become not skeptical, cynical, like Derrida land, that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, it's almost, it's like clockwork. Just set the, set the timer. Yeah. So the, the way that we would deal with doubts as credo Christians, I think is very different from the way that an LDS person is going to be told to deal with their doubts because um, we often, when we're dealing with various doubts, well, yes, we will depend on the subjective certainty, but we're primarily probably going to be depending on the objective certainty. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of believers will frequently say the, the field of apologetics, the field of defending the faith is really for the believer uh, even more than the unbeliever. Because as believers, we love seeing the, the objective reasons that we have to believe that the faith is true. Mm-hmm. Um, and that encourages us in our doubts in a way that our feelings never could. Mm-hmm. You know, and so um, I would just challenge, you know, LDS people who are doubting, um, check us out. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, totally. Um, Jay Gresham Machen's Christianity and Liberalism really helped me here. Um, because he, I mean, he addresses this in the form of liberalism, right? Because you had a bunch of liberals say, oh, yeah, he raised, raised on the third day in my heart. Yep. And Machen's like, no, if it didn't happen... <laughs> What good is it in your heart? Yep. Right. Your your subjective experience with it did not doesn't authenticate it or disauthenticate yeah. it. Yeah. Um, and um, and that combined with recognizing the difference between essential claims and adiaphora, whereas in LDSism, I mean, the, once again, it, it's it's impossible to live it perfectly. Right. So you're going to have this undertone of rebellion, but like way far the other way. So it's strictly regulated lifestyle to going crazy. And most people that leave do that. They go through a crazy phase where they do a bunch of stuff that they should regret. Um, (laughs) Drinking coffee, not being one of them. But if you put like drinking coffee, like on the same level as everything else, right? There's no, everything's a black and white issue you can see why the knee-jerk reaction to that is to make everything gray. You know? Um, to to see the Book of Mormon and how little evidence there is, it's very easy to then hear a Bart Ehrman interview and, and treat it the same way. When it's not. Bart Ehrman thinks there's a historical Jesus, and when he writes a book on it, he uses at least Mark <laughs> for it. Right? So we're going to disagree with him to the degree to which it's reliable. But we're not going to, you know, we're both arguing that there's history here. These are real people, real events. Yeah. Um, at least a historical core to it. And so, you know, the... Let's say... It, it, well, the, also the distinction here that I, I should throw in here. The distinction between the, the ministry and teaching and attending and being a member also. That's gone right yeah. uh in ldsism i mean it's all just kind of mingled whereas you know machin says when he i mean he's criticizing relentlessly the liberals and then says this 
something to this effect. I am not talking about the average person who has doubts. Yeah. The church welcomes them. That's right. This is a refuge for their souls. Yep. They are welcome here. They will they can come. And of course, there's going to be limits if they're baptized, if they're committed to that extent. But no, the 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 church is a hospital for the sick. It's yep. not boot camp for the perfectible. And that's different than ministers who will take and I I've seen this myself who will take vows to creeds, confessions, and the scriptures, which they reinterpret and don't even believe in. Yeah. That's liberalism. Yep. And you, you, so it'll come through differently in LDSism if it's like, well, the Book of Mormon's useful fiction or something yeah. like that, yeah. rather than it really happened. We can't do that. Yep. Like you lose Christianity if there wasn't a Jesus. Yep. If we had a, you know, our view is if you had a, camera there outside that tomb you would have seen it but we didn't have a camera there but we do have reliable witnesses to an event outside themselves not just in their heart yep uh it can't be just a hallucination yeah. a real event yep. that occurred yep. that we have documents of that are reliable that we lean on for god acting in history and then that history being authoritatively interpreted theologically by the apostles yeah now when dealing with the objective points that you're just now making we just have to recognize that it's impossible to satisfy somebody who is unwilling to believe um, to provide some sort of 100% objective certainty that is going to be true. Mm-hmm. Uh, because somebody could say, well, uh, you know, may- maybe you could ask somebody, how many, wi- how many eyewitnesses would it be enough for right. you to know that Jesus was re- resurrected? Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, uh, and, and you ask, would it be five? Is five enough? If you have five eyewitnesses, is that enough? And they say, well, no, I need more than five. Okay. All right. What about 50? Uh, I need a little more. Okay. Okay. Well, one of the apostles says 500 eyewitnesses. Is that enough? Mm -hmm. Is 500 enough for you to believe that it's true, that he resurrected from the dead? Somebody who is going to just be hard of heart and resistant to belief for whatever reasons. Of course, we would point to the noetic effects of the fall, Mm -hmm. uh, just, just the... The, the sin nature is yeah, going to on the mind resist as well. yeah, yeah resist the truth uh, it will it will affect a, the ability of a person to reason um, so even the person who says well you know or the person who would say I need more than 500 how, how many would it take like how many eyewitnesses would you need in order to believe and of course in our self-centered age most people say well I only need one eyewitness and it needs to be me right? Mm-hmm. Um, but even but, then, why do you trust your senses? Exactly. How I many mean, people saw Jesus? Yeah. Right. How many people heard Jesus? How mm-hmm. many people were around Jesus? How many people saw the miracles of Jesus? The rebuke that came to Peter was that he didn't trust Jesus, whom he had witnessed doing mm-hmm. more miracles than we probably even know about. Right. And there's right. So yeah, early sources they didn't question whether Jesus performed miracles; they questioned the source of them. Yep. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, it's just for some people, there's no amount of evidence that'll be enough. Yeah. So on one hand, we have to challenge that. But on the other hand, this retreat, this pietism, this retreat into all that matters is my subjective experience of Jesus is also dangerous. Yeah. Because that's right. our hearts, that's where Christianity goes to die. Yep. We're making claims about things that happened. If those things did not happen... Jesus raised on the third day in your heart authenticates nothing. Yep. I, there are sincere believers who have experiences in every religion. So how do you determine the difference between them? Like, 
right? <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, it's you. You got to distinguish and see their appropriate place. But it is true. I don't, you know, and it, this is. It was hard for me to trust experience yeah. in Christianity because I had experiences as an LDS. Um, so I don't, you know, I'm going to be prone to overreact. But see, experience, the subjective, that's the result of of objective things. It's not the basis of it. Yeah, Christians have experiences, but Christianity is not primarily experiential. Yeah, that makes sense. I I, I don't know if that's worded right. Yeah, but. I appreciate along these lines, uh, just this point from uh, Cornelius Van Til, Ugh, love Christian Van Til. apologist, but. He says, the best and only possible proof for the existence of such a God. Now, of course, there's going to be other people who would disagree with some of this premise, but just follow along because you'll, you'll get his point. The best and only possible proof for the existence of such a God is that his existence is required for the uniformity of nature and for the coherence of all things in the world. In other words, mm-hmm. nature has a uniformity and coherence because there is a God who created it. Mm-hmm. We cannot prove proof put in italics. We cannot prove the existence of beams underneath a floor if by proof we mean that they must be ascertainable in the way that we can see the chairs and tables in the room. But the very idea of a floor as a support of tables and chairs requires the idea of beams that are underneath. But there would be no floor if no beams were underneath. Thus, there is absolute certain proof for the existence of God and the truth of Christian theism. Even non-Christians presuppose its truth while mm-hmm. they verbally reject it. Yep, They need to presuppose the truth of Christian theism in order to account for their own accomplishments. And of course, Van Til in that particular article is interacting with people who are scientists who are rejecting the possibility of theism. He's saying, if you want to boast in your accomplishments, your boasting is only possible if you're embracing the presupposition that the world is orderly enough for you to be able to carve out a corner of it and say that you came to understand it. Mm-hmm. That presupposes a God. Yeah. And so even the unbeliever has to live under a sort of presupposition of the creation being as it is because of the orderliness of the God who made it. For sure. That's true philosophically, theologically, and historically. And this is somewhere where in the post-Mormon podcast land, they're not going to touch because they don't know this stuff or they don't care to. Yeah. Why do you have astrology everywhere in the world? It becomes astronomy in Christianity. Why do you have alchemy everywhere in the world? It becomes chemistry in a, in a Catholic cathedral, Catholic lowercase c. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it's, it's not, you know, historians of science... Philosophers of science are not as, I'm not saying they're evangelicals necessarily, but they're not going to be as flippant in rejecting Christianity as a loudmouth Richard Dawkins or Sam Harris who's like, oh, I'm not religious because I'm going to define religion as not including Buddhism or whatever. Yep. Um, it's, it's interesting that the people who invented science, and Peter Harrison is a great historian on this, they invented it to find the mind of God. Yep. They assumed, based on biblical teaching, the uniformity of nature because they believed in this God. And they also, the, to think of the scientific method of trying to prove something wrong. He shows in his book, it's called the, I think it's called The Fall of Man and the Foundations of Natural Science. Yep. That, that was literally done with Genesis 3 in mind. 
Yep. Because because of the noetic effects of sin. Yep. This is not just something that the reformers the reformers were not revolutionaries. This tradition it goes back to the beginning is rooted in scripture. So historically it's not true. And philosophers of science are not as quick either. Yeah. Uh, to say, oh yeah. I mean, science itself cannot prove its own importance. Yeah. Show me the chemistry study or, you know, use the microscope or the telescope to show me why it matters. Yeah. You don't have it. Yeah. So you have to appeal to some unseen standard by which that study even has meaning. Yep. Oh, okay. But we just won't go to God. Yeah. That's, that's how sinful we are. Yeah. And I think the point in all this is to say that your faith ought to be such that you can, you can lean into philosophy and sure. science and things of that, that nature and not feel like the ground is just being pulled out from underneath you. No. Um, so so I, it's just a challenge for, for, for LDS folks. When, when we in evangelical Christian circles deal with doubts, we don't run away from objective proofs. We don't run away from objective thinking. We don't mm-hmm. run away from these things. We actually often run toward them to have more confidence in who our God is. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's something that I just don't see really being allowed in a lot of ways in the LDS faith. Um, mm-hmm. you know, you don't see a whole lot of, you see a lot of work done within, uh, evangelical Christianity to try to give objective proofs for the trustworthiness of the Bible. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't see a ton of that going on with the book of Mormon. I mean, you do Partly see, maybe you because you can't, but <laughs> yeah, you, you see some yeah. really sad efforts, right? Yeah. Like there was about eight times where there's a subtle uh, hint of something that could connect to an archeological dig that was in central America. It's like, no, that's, that's not enough. You right. need a lot more than that. Like right. when, we're, when we talk about archeological digs in the Bible, we talk about things that are like objectively, lining up with the timeline that the Bible is teaching and and giving us actual names of people who are talked about in the Bible that are found on inscriptions and these archaeological digs. Like we're talking about objective things that we hold on to for the legitimacy of our faith. Mm -hmm. You got it. I think you've got to have that. Absolutely. And it's true that the further back you go in history, the less evidence you're going to have studying any civilization. Yeah. So once again, I think part of it is we, as, as moderns, we're going to assume a standard of evidence that's kind of pretty disconnected to what 99.9% of people have ever experienced, yep. right? Yep. Um, but yeah, and, and going along with the doubt question, I can say from experience, the difference between asking questions in an LDS context and asking them in a Christian context, I have absolutely no fear in calling up my pastor, calling up you, any Christian who's thoughtfully ministering and studying these things um, with tough questions. Yep. Zero percent fear. Why? I mean, if anything, and you know Jason too, right? He's going to have a list of books for me. We're going to discuss it. Some of it's going to be really academic. He's going to give his reasons. He's going to give me reasons that aren't even his. He's going to say, this is how Christians have dealt with it before. This is kind of the range of stuff. This is my opinion. But when it comes to the essential things of the faith, we distinguish essential things in Adiaphora. Yeah. You know? Um, And not everything is equally necessary to be absolutely certain about all the time. It's uh, because at the end of the day, we believe in grace. We're saved by grace, not by subjective certainty. We progress based on Christ's merits, not by our secret knowledge based on that subjective certainty. Yep. And so there's a lot more breathing room to then say, oh, interesting. 
how are we going to handle, how do we handle this? Or how have people done with that? Or, you know, you just showed me a book on the problem of evil that looks fascinating. I mean, this, just look around this room. This yeah. is not a library that's only read church approved sources. And then Ballard talk that we don't have time to get into, I'm sure, but where he's like, stay in the boat. And then he just basically used the sphere tactic, right? Yeah. Be like, well, where are you going to get meaning in life? How about the real Jesus? Yeah. I get, I found meaning outside of the LDS church <laughs> yeah. based on the real Jesus. And I mean, the, just the last thing that came to mind, you know, the lesson is called Be Not Afraid. Yeah. And I'm going to say this and push back if you feel to or think to. If you're going to stay in that LDS boat, you should be afraid. Mm. That's... You, you absolutely should be afraid. Yeah. Because apart from the real Jesus, and that's going to include being a member in a faithful church, you should be afraid. Mm -hmm. Because if what Jesus said about hell and the judgment is true, you don't have however long you want eternally in the spirit world to make up for whatever. You know, you can just have fun in this life and worry about it later. No, 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 no. There's an urgency to Jesus' teachings. Yep. And if he is who he claims to be, and you stay in the LDS boat following false prophets like Ballard, you should be afraid. Yeah. A heavy, yet probably appropriate note to end on. And uh, yeah, we would, we would just challenge you that uh, um, it is our belief that there is reasons for objective certainty that there is an almighty creator God Mm -hmm. there's reasons for certainty that that God has chosen to reveal himself. Yep. There's reasons to believe that that revelation has been written down uh, in real time, in real history, by real people in the Bible mm -hmm. so that we can know him Yep. and trust him. Mm -hmm. uh, but ultimately, only the Holy Spirit is going to be able to... If, yep. if the Father doesn't draw you... That's right. You can't hear me. That's You're right. not my sheep. That's right. So God acts first. What you got there to close? There's a great early Christian poet in hymn writer, Prudentius. He has an awesome Roman name, a tripartite Roman name, but just if you want to Google him or whatever, his name's Prudentius. And he wrote two hymns on the feeding of the 5,000. I'm going to read a section of both. Yeah. Um, the Bread of Life. Thou, our bread, our true refreshment, Never failing sweetness art. He can never more know hunger who is at thy banquet fed, nourishing not only uh, not our fleshly nature, but imparting lasting life. Every sickness now surrenders, every listlessness departs. Tongues long bound by chains of silence are unloosed and speak aright, while the joyful paralytic bears his pallet through the streets. Now I'm jumping to this one the feast of the Creator. The banquet ended, plates still overflow, and with the crumbs twelve baskets then they fill. The stuffed boy strives with undigested fare. The waiter groans beneath his heavy load. Who can a great feast spread from stores so few? Who but the maker of our frame and all that nurtures it, who shaped the world from naught? Sounds like creation ex nihilo. Almighty God, without the aid of seed, Fashion the earth, not as the sculptor works, to lift the block of bronze from metal fused. All that now is was not that nothingness was into being brought and bid and grow. Small was the first creation, but it grew till it became the mighty universe. The gifts of Christ to keep and spread afar. 